Thank you for listening to the following sermon from Pine Grove Community Church in Rylander, Wisconsin. For more information, please visit us at pinegrove-wi.com. We hope you enjoy the sermon. You have any enemies? I mean, people that you really don't like and don't like you. I mean, I know that you think you have enemies out there who aren't Christians or blah, 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 or whatever, but do you actually have an enemy? Somebody that you avoid, somebody that you really dislike, despise. you have any of those? Yep. Do you love them? So as we continue on our Advent series, the second, uh, we're going through the Gospel of John and looking at the specific statements that come. Uh, the intent with which Christ came. Why did He come? What purposes did He come? And we're going to look at today that Christ came to save the world. And in the, we'll read in those texts that His coming to save the world was coming, that term world means the world was dark, wicked, evil, arrayed against Him, aligned against Him. Psalm chapter 2 says that the rulers of this world have come and taken counsel together trying to defeat God. And it's into that world that God not only sent His Son, but sent His only begotten Son, His precious Son, His eternally beloved Son, to His mortal enemies to save them. And so do you love your enemies? Because God does. I'm going to read at a few places in the Gospel of John. We'll start with very well-known verses in John chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. I'll be in John chapter 3, John chapter 12, and John chapter 17, so you can just flip with me. We are actually working on a program to get the verses up on the screen. Don't want it all that to disincline you to bring your own Bible, but also want it to be helpful, especially some who are newer and aren't yet skilled at flipping places quickly, or children and so on, but we're going to start John chapter 3, verse 14. This is God's Word. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now John chapter 12, if you flip there, begin at verse uh, 46. So this is John chapter 12, verse 46. I have come into the world as light. So here's purpose statements. This is what we're looking at. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. 
If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. And now John chapter 17. We'll read a little lengthier section here. We'll begin at verse 14 and read to the end of the chapter. So John 17, beginning at verse 14. This is Christ praying just hours before His crucifixion. I have given them Your Word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that You take them out of the world, but that You keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in Your truth. Your Word is truth. As You sent Me in the world... So I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love of which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray and ask God's help. Father, give us now, by your Spirit, a pledge of your goodness towards us. Our eyes do long for the second coming of your Son, his salvation, the fulfillment of all of your promises. But God, give us in gold your testimonies. Act, please. Your commandments are above gold, above even fine gold. God, teach us to hate every false way and to love your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, one way to think of Advent or Christmas, it is the Advent, the appearing, the revealing of God's love. Now, our love, your kind of love that is human and in the world is often very different than God's love. As I said at the open, God loves His enemies. God's love is a giving love. It's a love that provides what is most needed at His expense. Well, our love is often for our own sake. And in our own convenience. And on our own terms. Our love doesn't so much give as giving a little in order to get more. That's often our love. God's love is utterly different. And we see that right away in John 3.16 that the source of all that God has done in fulfilling His promise to save sinners was motivated, comes from His eternally great love. This week, Roger Morgan called before he hurt his leg, 
and he was working on a electrical issue and uh, couldn't figure out why an outlet wasn't working. And one of the things that's fun with electricity is like these wires, you know, you got to trace them back. They go certain places and come from certain places. You have to find the source of the problem. And he thought maybe it was a panel breaker that was, wasn't good. You know, the uh, power comes into your house and then in the panels distributed to various sources through breakers. And sometimes if the breaker is bad, then what's ever downstream of that breaker won't work. Well, that wasn't it because other things downstream of that breaker weren't working. And it was that this outlet further on the house came through a GFI outlet that had been tripped. Ground fault. And so you had to trace it back to that. And so as we trace back why God sent His Son to save the world, the place that you always arrive is that it's just God's love. I wanted to get that clear because it's nothing else other than that. It isn't that you prayed so much that God answered your prayer to send His Son. It isn't that God foresaw that the Christian church would be this bright, shining, beautiful, glorious reality in the world and so He decided to send His Son to save her. It was just His free love that motivated Him to send His Son to die to save the world. That's it. Period. So, just Uh, coming off of Thanksgiving, you'll remember that the uh, Puritans, some people in England who couldn't be part of the English church anymore because they were dissenting, came over seeking a new land here to America. And that they didn't arrive exactly where they wanted, but ended up north of that, and it was winter, and they were, they had to wade a long, hundred yard, a couple hundred yards on the shore because the, it was too shallow, and they were soaking wet, and it's winter, and they were looking for food, and they found some Indian stores of corn, and followed Indians, and uh, couldn't talk to them, and were afraid, and sleeping out there, and finally one Indian came, and he kind of was able to talk a little English, but talked about another Indian named Squanto. Remember him? Squanto had been able to go back to Spain when the Spanish were there, and it ended up in England so could speak English. And he became the mediator between the pilgrims and all the Native Americans that allowed the pilgrims to survive. He was always between the English Puritans and the Native Americans. He was their mediator. This is what God sent His Son to do. God sent His Son to be between us and Him so that we could now come to Him and so that we could be given life. And the reason with which God sent His Son to do that was just His love. That's it. And so we are here in these verses as we think about Christ coming to save the world. What we're considering is that God loves us. Did you know that? Now, I know that you know that, but do you know that? There is a, we have a reason. We have the ability to think things out. And that is important here. Part of our faith is a reasonable faith. We have to come to some understanding of what this means. But the greater part of our faith isn't just a mere reasonable understanding, but an experience of it. It's not that we grasp this truth, but that this truth grasps us. And that you 
go throughout your daily life with some awareness, some assurance that the Father in heaven, who is infinite and eternal and holy, loves us. So this text, this giving of this information that God sent His Son to save the world is to reassure His people that He loves us. And so do you know that? Do you know that the love of God was made plain, communicated to us, in that God sent His Son in the world that we might have life through Him? This is one of the things that we as Christians assume we know, but don't really live in light of it. We can become very dull in this. We can live being able to articulate this truth, but it really doesn't change the way that you view the world or view others or interact with issues that come up in your day. It's not lived, though it's known. And so that's something to pray for, isn't it? That during this Advent season, you would move beyond knowing and ex- to experiencing it. That you would move from being able to just articulate it, from being able to have it grab you, change you, cause you to be different. That it would be seen in your life because you realize that though you were an enemy of God, He made you His friend through the sending of His Son to save the world, and so you would treat others more gently, more patiently, more kindly. Because that's how God has treated you. Now, the motive with which God sent His Son to save the world was love. But this term world is a little different than how you typically hear the Bible speak of Jesus coming to die. It's usually that God sent His Son into the world to save sinners. And so when John inserts the term world there, that can be, what does that mean? Even though everybody knows John 3.16, right kids? Can you say John 3.16? Well, that's good. Keep going. For God's so, keep going. Alright, you can say it. Right. What does it mean that God so loved the world? What does that term world mean there? Well, right away, it should, it's there in order to make you go back to creation. That the creator of the world has come into the world to fulfill the promises he's made. We sang it this morning. That in the garden, God gave a promise to redeem fallen humanity. And that that promise came before there was any such thing as Jew or Gentile. Make you think of the promise given to Abraham that he would have a son through whom all of God's promises of salvation uh, it would bless all nations. So this term world here is to get people's minds moved from it's not Jew only, but Jew and Gentile world that encompasses all. It's freely available to any who would come now. Though salvation does come by the Jews, and though we look for in the future a great salvation among the Jews, salvation is available to all, he's saying. It's not restricted. Now we learn this in Galatians. There is therefore neither Jew nor Gentile. 
free nor slave. Even male and female don't matter in Christ. All are welcome to come to Him. For instance, let's talk about, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is one of the signs given to us of God's love for us in salvation. The other sign in the New Covenant is what? Baptism. Now, what are, what are some of the differences, let's say, between the New Covenant sign of entrance into the kingdom, baptism, and the Old Covenant sign of circumcision? There's one major difference. I mean, there's lots of them, but there's one real one. Well, who gets circumcised? Just boys. Why not girls? Seriously, that's a big deal, isn't it? Well, because it was an incomplete sign. It was just for a, a time. Baptism communicates that now these distinctions among us, though they matter, don't matter in regards to coming to Christ. All are welcome. Right? Male and female. Nobody's better than the other. And so one of the things that you see in circumcision is that you should have known right away that it was an incomplete sign. It was a temporary sign. Because it wasn't male and female yet then. Now it is. This is what's getting at with this term world. All are welcome. But that's not the main thing it means. The main thing it means is seen, let's say, in verse 19 of chapter 3. And this is the judgment that light has come in the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Right away in the beginning of John's Gospel, we read that the light was coming to the world And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world did not know him. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that they just like hadn't seen him for a while and didn't recognize him anymore. You know, like if you see somebody 20 years later and kind of think you maybe know him, but don't recognize. That's not what it means here. It means a, a stubborn refusal to give him the honor and glory that He is due as our Creator. We act like we don't know Him. We act like we will not give Him the reverence and worship and gratitude that He's due. We won't bend the knee. Kids, you understand this with your parents, right? You can hear your mom or dad say something very clear and you act like you don't know them. That's what's getting at here. Parents, you get this, right? And sometimes your kids leave in line and say, I didn't hear you. That, that's a lie. And what they're saying is, I do not acknowledge your God-given right over me. I'm the one in the right. You should listen to me. That's what the term world is getting at here. A world of darkness. Dark. Evil. Vile. Wants to act like there is no God who sees anything that we do. And that there will be no accounting for it. That we can do whatever we please. Because we are all that matters. You are all that matters. This is the world into which God sent His Son. He didn't come into a world that received Him. He didn't come into a world that would love Him. He didn't come into a world that would thank Him for coming. He came into a world that would murder Him. The Son of God, our our Creator. So God loves His enemies. Now that's you. This is you. 
one of the mistakes we make when we consider what God did in sending His Son with ourselves, who are Christians now, is we can get the impression that Jesus just kind of comes to make us a little bit better. We're pretty good. But Jesus just came to make us better. Now it's like you, you find a young kid who's got all the athletic tools. Athletically gifted, but he's not polished yet. He just needs a little coaching to unlock the already latent ability that's there. That's not who we are. The Bible speaks of us as dead to Him. You. And we want in the American church to picture Jesus as like garnish. Jesus is just like a little thing that makes your life better. More attractive. More peaceful. We don't want to see Him as the one who brings us from death to life, who makes us completely new, killing the old. Because we're vile. We love darkness. This is us. And whether you're a brand new Christian or a many year Christian, the reality is you need Jesus because you hated God. That's what the term world is getting at here. That's the world he came into. Jew and Gentile, doesn't matter. Male or female, same. Young or old, slave or free, same. Now, if you go back again to the garden, think of the term world, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? It's the saddest part in the whole Bible. They were removed from God's presence and the way back into it was barred. Their sin was so reprehensible that they were removed from the presence of God in His life and not allowed back in except on God's terms. And the terms are Christ and and faith and that's it. That's it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will never perish but will be welcomed back to the source of life. We'll be again embraced in the Heavenly Father's eternally loving family. This is what makes the Gospel so incredible. God loved His enemies. God loved His enemies. So He sent His Son. Now just think about you again. You have enemies. I mean, you may have people who did, who have done vile things to you. You have people maybe who you know, if they had their way, you would be removed. You know, they'd wish bad on you. Maybe you're like that to somebody. And you wouldn't do a thing for your enemy. Ever. We don't love them. I mean, At the very best, we acknowledge their right to exist, but we want nothing to do with them. 
we may be able to get ourselves to the place with our enemies that we don't actively wish harm on them anymore, but we definitely don't wish any good on them. And nor would we lift a finger to see any good come to them. You guys do this in your own households. Siblings do this. They get angry when good comes to one of their siblings. Because they view their sibling as an enemy. And they view God's blessings as like limited. And if my sibling gets it, then there's none left for me. Enemy. Spouses do this. Constantly at odds with each other. This is in your workplace. This is, this is you. And you can see the greatness of God's love in that He sent His Son to a world filled with enemies and only enemies so that He might die for them to make them His children. Why? That's the kind of love He has. That's who He is. Do you get that? That's what we're celebrating during Advent. The coming of God's Son in the world to save His enemies is revealing the kind of God our God is. He's that kind of a God. That's His nature. That's His being. If you were allowed right now a fuller experience of God's being, what you would walk into the presence of is pure, infinite love. Not hatred, not anger, not frustration, not judgment, but love. The kind of love that doesn't withhold His Son, but gladly sends Him, not to friends, not to family, to enemies. You can see the greatness of God in His nature because you can see how petty you are. You can't even treat your husband with respect. And God sent His Son to die for you. You can't even be bothered to think for a moment what would be loving for your wife and tender to her. And God sent His Son to die for you. You can't be bothered at all to let your brother or your sister, sit in the seat that you wanted to sit in and blow up to no end, but God sent His Son to die for you as enemy. Can't you see the greatness of God in this? This is what we're seeing. I referee basketball, and I'm a pretty good referee except in one thing. I can get angry very quickly with coaches or players, even spectators who disagree with my refereeing. I mean, I can go from zero to real quick. It's a great weakness. It's really a, it's bad officiating. I cannot love my enemies. <laughs> I'm very unlike God. Aren't you? And this is what makes the gospel so wonderful. You will never see the greatness of God's glory until you see the depths of your depravity. You will never see it. This is the thing the church lives to deny that we're sinners. Right? It's all easy believism. Just pray this prayer and it'll all be better. It's junk. That's not true. 
Sure, pray a prayer, but do it on your knees with tears streaming out of your eyes because you realize you deserve nothing but wrath from a holy God, but he spent his son for you. Lift your eyes to heaven and cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do that, please. But don't do this half-hearted, get-out-of-jail-free card so I can live however I want. That's not salvation. That's a lie. Jesus didn't come to garnish your life. He came to kill you and make you new. If you will not live as if that's true, then you are not a Christian. If you aren't viewing every, trying to view everything as new, as different, then you do not realize that you're an enemy. You think you're pretty good and He's just going to make you a little sweeter. You're like mild sweet tea and he's going to make you sweet. That ain't true. You're bitter poison. And he's going to redeem you. Okay, so that's what the term world means. A Christian is one that God has sent into the world to save from darkness to light, to make you new at the cost of his son, though you were his enemy. And so as a Christian then, you are no longer of the world but of His kingdom. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. We are seated in the heavenlies with Christ at the right hand of God, right? So we're no longer worldlings. We're Christlings. So how then should a Christian who is part of God's kingdom relate to the world? I've got a few places I'd like you to turn in the Gospel of John. We're going to go through these a bit quickly. John 16, 33. <clears throat> There's one thing that you become aware of when you are taken from the world by faith in God's Son that this world is pretty ugly. And, and that being a Christian doesn't always make things easier. So one of the ways you relate to the world is that you can trust in God and have peace here. I've said these things to you so that you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, you have trouble, you have pain. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is only true for a Christian. So one of the ways you can relate to the world is in your mind, in your conscience, you know you are free from the condemnation of the world so you have peace with God. He's not at enmity with you. He's not opposed to you. He didn't give you a cold because he's angry with you. So you can have peace with God. Here's what Calvin says, whenever our sins press hard on us, whenever Satan would drive us to despair, we must hold up this shield that God does not want us to be overwhelmed in evil destruction of the world, for he has ordained his son to be the savior of the world. Our peace is with God. And so you can have peace in this world in your circumstances. Then, we're not going to turn there, but you'll know this. In 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If we have been rescued out of the darkness and destruction of the world, we shouldn't long to return. You remember when Israel was rescued out of Egypt, what's the, one of the first, one of the first uh, things they daydreamed about? Oh, remember the pots of meat and, right? They still loved Egypt. So do not love the world. 
This doesn't mean don't enjoy the material blessings that God gives you. But you must be different than the world. You must not love the world's ways anymore. This is particularly true sexually. You cannot give yourselves in the sexual immorality of the world and think that you're a Christian. You cannot watch what the world watches. You cannot enjoy what the world enjoys. You cannot think of sex the way the world thinks of sex. You cannot give yourselves to pornography and lust and fornication and masturbation and all that the world now rejoices in and believe yourself to be a Christian. Third, back to the Gospel of John, though I forgot to put the reference, the world will hate you. You will not find love in the world. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before I hated you, or before it hated you. (laughs) If you were in the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because you are His, because He chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Kids, you get that? If you're going to live in the love of God, if you're going to be different than the world, you will be despised by the world. This is something that Christians are often tempted to feel the pressure of. We want to be accepted. It can happen in the world workplace, right? In the school. You so want to be accepted. You don't want to be hated. You don't want to be on the outside. I'm not saying that you need to be weird and a jerk. Just saying, if you'll just be a normal Christian, there will be many who will want nothing to do with you. And lastly, in John 17, what we read, and then one thing after this we'll close, we are not of the world, but we are still in the world to be witnesses to it. When Jesus says, or when we read that God sent His only Son to save the world, we're the means through which God is doing that. You and I, the church, together, are placed in this world by the Heavenly Father to be the means through which God accomplishes the saving of it, of sinners. And so we are to be witnesses. Well, by your conduct. It should be different. And it is. For many, like you come to church on Sunday. The world isn't doing that. Praise God. Good work. Hopefully you use your finances different than the world. Praise God. Maybe you read your Bibles. The world doesn't do that. Praise God. Keep doing that stuff. It's great. By your conduct it should be. By your hope. That you fight to trust in God's goodness towards you when stuff isn't going as you want it to be. That's different than the world. They don't have that hope. This is particularly true in death. Christians should die differently than unbelievers. Not that death is fun. Not that death will be easy. Not that you have to make believe that everything's good. But that in your suffering, you have hope that allows you to die well in Christ. It should be different. And of course, evangelism. I'm thinking here of our church as a whole. What we saw last week with Verna was incredible. People ride around her. 
The church should be different in this. We should be unified. And in John chapter 17, as Jesus prays, He prays that we would be one so that the world may know that God sent His Son and loved us even as He loved them. So our care, our unity, our prayer together, our love for each other should be communication of the world that God sent His Son. Many of us went to Marcus and Tamara's wedding last weekend. It was really fun. It wasn't a gaudy wedding. It, it was, I don't mean this negatively, it was simple. Right? But it was very enjoyable. Why was it so enjoyable? I was talking with Keith about this last week. You know why? It's just love. There's no pretense. There's no showiness. It's just love. It made it one of the sweetest things you could ever be a part of. It's free. That's what the church should be together. So that we could be witnesses in the world. Alright, last thing. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, His begotten Son, so that all who believe in Him will never perish but have everlasting life. So many Christians give themselves to a constantly depressive view of the world. If I had a dollar for every time a Christian came to me and said, oh, it's really bad, I think the end is coming, I could retire. You know that's not true. Do you know that's not true? Those of you who consistently look up websites that look at Old Testament prophecy to interpret the latest event on, on earth and then use that as evidence that Jesus must be coming very soon are not looking at what God aims to do through His church by the power of the gospel. You view the world, you view the gospel so pessimistically. There's no wonder that you have little impact, we have, have little impact on the world. Shouldn't we have optimism as Christians? And shouldn't we be different? Yeah, the world is depressing. It always has been. I mean, it's no worse than any other time right now. In some ways, it's far better. I mean, in, far better. We have to, we have to not be like Peter and constantly look at the circumstances, but look at Christ and have some hope and joy in this world. To be the Savior of the world. What does that mean? It means what it means. He's going to be the Savior of the world. He's not going to be sitting there watching it go to pot, enjoying that all of his believers agree with him that it's going to pot. That's not pleasing to him. He's the Savior of the world. The Bible says that the knowledge of God will cover the earth as water covers the seas. That's some hope there, isn't it? Wouldn't that be wonderful? He's the Savior of the world. Christ's great work on the cross is a world-saving work, not a a world-escaping work. So we got work to do, don't we? What's our work? Well, I mean, this isn't just something amazing, spectacular. It's just prayer, loving your wife, submitting to your husband, trying to raise your kids to love Jesus, keeping your home, going to work and doing a good job, inviting people to the Christmas Eve service. 
Maybe it's building a business, doing it differently than the world. We've got work to do. And it's part of a world-saving work. We're part of it. What a, what a joy. Our Father has written a world-saving work. And we get to play a part. You get to. I get to. We get to. No one is useless in this. Everybody's got a part. Isn't that good news? Huh? Can you have some optimism that looks at Christ and sees what He's going to do in the world and quit being such a Eeyore all the time? Alright, let's pray. Father, help us to give You the honor and glory that You're due. That while we were yet enemies, You sent Your Son. That in this, Your love was shown to us. That You sent Your Son to be the propitiation for the sins of the world. And so we praise You for Your love. Help us to know it more. Help us to experience it more. And so God, then help us to be more useful in this world to Your glory, especially that we might see more coming who know Jesus. Father, fill our hearts now. Fill our minds. Fill our souls with this knowledge that reassures us of Your love in Christ to us. Especially when doubt arises, when our own sins threaten to overwhelm us, when Satan lies to us. May we look to this simplicity that You so loved this world and us that You sent Your Son to be its Savior. And so reassure us please before You. And may as we take the Lord's Supper that also be uh, reassuring. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.